With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and today we're also talking about ADHD. Every episode you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing that we can't get off of our minds, and today you've got me, Daisy Rosario. I'm a senior supervising producer of audio here at Slate, and I will be talking to Blair Postman. Blair is a stand-up comedian and storyteller who has been touring with her show, Lady ADHD. In Lady ADHD... Blair shares with the audience what it's like to live inside the mind of a woman with ADHD and also kind of tries to give you the experience of what it feels like. I hope you'll come away tonight with a new appreciation for the kinds of things that an ADHD brain can bring to the table. Like, for example, who cares that I burned the toast again, man? Because it happened I was over here working out the multiverse of who first even thought of putting dough in a fire to make bread. Have you had bread? Now, I first became aware of Blair's show when I saw a listing for it here in the D.C. region where I live. And when I saw the title, I immediately just knew that I wanted to know more. I am someone myself who in early 2022 was diagnosed with ADHD, like officially diagnosed by a big old hospital and went through the whole process and took lots of tests and had to talk to lots of people. And when I found out, it didn't make sense. Boy, did it make sense. But it also was confusing to me because I didn't understand how I could make it all the way to my 40s without ever noticing. Well, as I have learned, it turns out it's incredibly common for women to not get diagnosed in their youth, but to get diagnosed later in life if they do have ADHD. And this is for a number of reasons that Blair and I will get into today, including the fact that Apparently, the way that ADHD presents in women is not exactly the way that people picture it when they're thinking about a child. So I'm very excited to share this conversation with Blair with you, because maybe you, like me, will hear something that sounds familiar and find yourself doing some research and then potentially getting diagnosed with something that suddenly makes a really big impact in your life. Hey, Waves listeners, we hope that you are loving the show. And if you want to hear more, please subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's that featured a conversation between one of Slate's own and a correspondent who is on the verge of becoming a mother. It's the conversation about balancing motherhood with your work that you want to hear. All right. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Daisy Rosario, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Blair Postman. She's a comedian and writer and performer of a show called Lady ADHD. And ADHD in women is what we are talking about today. Thank you so much, Blair. So excited that you're here. 
Welcome. See, I just said what you said. I was so ready to pay attention to every word. I mean, thank you, Daisy. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. (laughs) I just welcomed myself (laughs) to your podcast. I understand the brain fires so quickly because that is what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about ADHD, specifically in women, and also the fact that women don't often get diagnosed in childhood. They get diagnosed as adults. I am one of these women who was diagnosed late in life. If you read articles about it, if you know, just read people's own posts or writing about this. And also when we talk about ADHD, you know, kind of most doctors who talk about it will tell you that the image that comes to mind for a lot of people is a hyperactive little boy. Yes, Right. And that is not the image that young women and girls dealing with ADHD necessarily give off. I am absolutely hyperactive. I still, though, have racing thoughts a lot of the time when I'm just, you know, when I've sort of burnt out and I'm just like laying in bed or staring at a screen, but I'm not really looking at what I'm at. So, yes, that that stereotype has kept a lot of people from being diagnosed over the years, especially women of color. Um, for a multitude of reasons. But in addition, the the name Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder focuses on some of the symptoms but doesn't really get at the heart of what's going on or the multitude of the symptoms. I've had the uh, chance to interview um, experts. The head of learning differences at Children's National Hospital in D.C., for example, uh, came on after a show last summer and did some Q&A with the audience and that kind of thing. And you learn um, about all the other things that are not in that name and that people don't think of that actually causes, I think, the general public to continue to have this misconception about ADHD that it's not really very important or it doesn't really get in the way of your life. For example, over the course of the last 36 hours, I have been trying to um, put together a 1099 form for someone I paid money to for some services last year. I like to preface this by saying I graduated from a very good law school. Um, I think I got a B or B plus in tax law. Like I didn't fail it. I was calling myself stupid. I was freaking out. I I shed real tears at one point because I couldn't move on with anything else until I figured out what this freaking box meant and why it was where it was and why I didn't have anything for it. And when I say meltdown, like toddler who's been at the mall too long meltdown, that's what we're talking about. And my husband could tell you that that happens a fair bit. And there's a lot of negative self-talk. That part's not necessarily the ADHD itself, but more the what other people have said to me as a child and growing up before I was diagnosed and having these behaviors. And I had a total meltdown. And then, as my husband said, in 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you're going to feel fine. And I'm still going to feel bad because you felt so bad. I will have a complete and total meltdown, at least my awareness of it and the fact that I know that this is part of ADHD, that I'm not literally sort of losing my mind or my grasp on reality. Is It helps me, I think, um, much like I imagine somebody with diagnosed anxiety or who might be having a panic attack. Once you know what it is, Sometimes, not for everyone, you can kind of use your mind a little bit to help you calm down. And, um, and it's, but it's really real. But 15 minutes later, I'm fine, which is very weird for people. <laughs> the few people who get, to, who get to experience that full range of Blair Postman emotions. 
I'm sorry, what was your question? <laughs> was there one? No, I mean, I just relate to that so much. I mean, as someone who, you know, is recently diagnosed, I'm looking back on so many things and going, oh, that makes sense. Or, um, you know, one thing I've noticed is like, I feel like I should have figured out that I was neurodivergent earlier because I was just yelling the word brain at myself for 15 years. I don't know that... <laughs> Everybody screams brain at themselves constantly because it feels like that's where the mess is. Um, or I always found it odd that I could do a lot of really, really hard things, but I couldn't do a lot of what would be considered simple things. Do you know what I call that? Somebody um, at a we did a virtual show in October and um, we had a, a coach who was also a family, a licensed counselor and so forth on afterwards and another ADHD professional, and we were asked by one of the audience member, what does ADHD feel like? And I said, me, I didn't think about this in advance. It just came out of my mouth. I said, ADHD feels like I am a super genius. And also, I cannot find my glasses. And that is, and that's getting in the way of me fully utilizing the super genius part. Um, but I have a video it's stupid. It's on TikTok, but it's. I wanted to show this. I I am walking around the house and it's cut up all day long, literally looking for my glasses every day. Except this is much worse than every day. This is like the longest I've gone without being able to find them in quite some time. I already looked in my office, but I feel like they could have fallen like under the desk. That's possible. No, seriously, where are my glasses? It's a string of stress and negative self-talk at the end of which I'm just like, anyway, I'm fine now. You have a lovely way of explaining what, you know, what ADHD is kind of at the top of your show. And I was just hoping you could share that. Oh, sure. I describe ADHD brains as having an unreliable amount of certain brain chemicals. And those chemicals regulate a multitude of functions. And one of those functions is attention. But they also regulate things like emotions, impulsivity, and hyperactivity, which is why we're way more fun at parties than you are. And there are some other um, elements to it, including the anxiety and some other stuff that I described later on. But um, I had a, a social worker came up to me last week and told me that putting those together and some of the things in the show, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, it just made me feel very validated. She said that is the best description, most accurate description of how it feels to be ADHD that she had heard. And I'm like, thank you, because now I feel like this much less of a, you know, off the wall person. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. Sometimes you hear that description and that finally is what makes sense to you. I mean, I got tested because... I think maybe I guess I'm thanking YouTube in a way like I was watching some other YouTube video and it was like another video that came on after it. But it just ended up playing a TED talk and it was a woman describing the way that ADHD felt to her. And I literally was like in the other room. It was just playing out of my television and I perked up like, wait a minute, this sounds like a very accurate description to things that I feel and experience all of the time. What were some of the like what were some of the clues you know, that you that you recognized in yourself or that you might recognize in a friend. I want to say the person was talking about um, things like it's not so much that you lack 
attention. It's that sometimes you have too much and you don't know what to do with it. That's why I say it's an unreliable amount, because right when we find something interesting, whatever that means to us, or it's urgent, etc., it actually releases, I guess you might call it more than we need of those brain chemicals. And that's when we're hyper-focused superheroes, or we spend all day arranging sock drawers. Exactly, because that's the thing. If I think about the times where I could do something very hard, it was always under pressure. I had been a PA on television shoots and things like that. Sure. No, you're in a very high pressure. We don't know each other, right? But look, I my day job um, for years before comedy was uh, I left law. It was too boring. It was a lot of sitting around reading footnotes. But I wound up in media sales and deadlines, deadlines, things, rigors, everything. I mean, nothing but deadlines. No, and I've, it's got to be that way in media production. Precisely. It very much is. And kind of realizing that uh, I was constantly drawn to the things that created those environments. Thinking about places that I've worked at, if I looked at the places where I had more success versus less success, it was usually the places that were, yeah, more high pressure. Things were changing all the time. There was always something to keep up with, as opposed to the more rhythmic, rote, that would physically, I would feel fighting against it. It it makes me crazy. Yeah, I can't. It's like I had perfectly good jobs. I just couldn't. I couldn't do. And I, um, you know, you need structure, but you hate structure. But you need to, you know, you need that in between thing. And I have often said that to some degree, there's some limit, and I don't know what it is. And where I have used uh, making sort of fake deadlines, lists, and other things before they had like the drugs that work. You know, I I was diagnosed a little while ago, and um, the. The making the deadline is essentially creating a scenario for myself where I am feeling enough anxiety each, let's say, workday or for whatever it might be, that it releases the dopamine that is caused from a chemical reaction that I'm not qualified to fully elaborate upon or, or understand. But to me, seems a little bit like a little fight or flight kind of reaction. And I wonder over time, I'm like, you know... Is that going to take a toll? And when I have meltdowns like that, and when they're bigger, when I become overwhelmed because I've created too many, not all real deadlines for stuff that I think I've told myself have to get done, because I'm afraid if I don't get the tires changed today, I'll never do it, it causes a lot of anxiety. I mean, just kind of continuing on some of that same stuff, it also made sense of, yes, I need music in the background or something, because if left to my own devices, my brain will wander even further. And so it's like you're trying to keep part of your mind busy so that you can focus on the other things that you actually need to focus on. Um, And also just kind of noticing how much, if I was really thinking back my life, my ability to keep certain habits always seemed much more tied to the current surroundings than my own actual commitment to those things. So for example, if I want to actually make sure I get my laundry put in the right place, that hamper has to be right in front of me. When I moved to the apartment where that was not an option, I suddenly could not do it. And it wasn't for lack of trying. It's that I had to just have it set up in a way that it was an immediate thing. You know, there's other things that I do that it is... It is both hard to make a habit, but also you need the habits. Yeah. I mean, it's the other another thing that I've found myself wanting to say to my partner, you know, let's say we're 
just out in the world and she's like, hey, look at that bird or something, right? She doesn't say anything specific. She's like, hey, look at that. Look at that means I, when we look, we could look at the exact same thing, but I, the way I try to explain it is that I am seeing very different things that are bolded and that if she wants me to see what she sees, then she needs to be specific. Because if you just tell me, look out the window and look at that, I'm going to notice all kinds of things that are probably not what they're talking about at all. It might be a stop sign at an intersection while you are driving a car that you should see, but you've seen something on the pavement like, look at that, look at that chalk paint someone did. That ability, that hyper-focused ability, when we release that extra dopamine because of interest or urgency or whatever it might be, that ability is where cures for cancer can come from, but also where my weird comedy bit comes from. We're going to take a quick break here. But if you want to hear more from Blair and myself on another topic, please check out our Sleep Plus segment where today we are talking about ADHD and the pandemic. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com forward slash the waves plus. Welcome back to The Waves. Today, I'm talking to Blair Postman because we are both ladies with ADHD. So, Blair, one of the things that you talk about in your show is that you had gone to this, like, elementary school, primary school that kind of lacked traditional structure. So I went to public school, but in uh, the New Jersey suburbs of New York City in the 1970s, if you were uh, in such a place, they had these things called open classrooms. And open classrooms were on one side of the building, and the traditional sit-in-a-row classrooms were on the other. And your parents had to opt you into the open classroom. I found out years later that people thought, um, the kids on the other side of the class, school thought the kids in the open classroom had like emotional and learning disabilities and maybe as it turns out we did but that's not why we were there grades one through three and four and then fourth and fifth grade all sort of shared the same teachers there was a lot of sitting on the ground in big circles there were a lot of different stations like we had things we had to accomplish especially like in the fourth and fifth grade iteration we had tests and stuff but it wasn't like This is what we're going to do every day at 2 p.m. And this is what we're going to do every day at 8.30 p.m. And this is when you do this and when you do that. A lot of what I did, especially kindergarten through third grade, was I'm going to do this listening um, corner and whatever. I just remember having a lot of flexibility. I remember even in fifth grade spending at least a day, except for a couple things that we had to do, writing a a, a play based on the movie Xanadu. But um, when I got to junior high, it was, I mean, complete shock. In grammar school, it was, if you get this done, if you're doing well, if you're not a jerk to other kids, and uh, and my grades were great in whatever that means in fifth grade. I don't know. But the you needed to get it done, but it wasn't exactly... This is how you have to do it, and this is exactly the way you have to do it. And as I say in the show, by the time I got to junior high, it was becoming really clear the world was going to want way less free to be you and me and way more 
1980s TV icon for coloring only very precisely inside the lines, Alex P. Keaton. I wasn't a bad kid. I didn't have that stereotype, but I would do homework I forgot about the day before. I don't know that open classrooms are for everyone, but I really think there's something to be said for finding a way to allow not just children, but grown-up people (laughs) to lean into as much as possible, lean into their strengths And that includes sometimes not being so wrapped up in the way they get to the thing you need done. Yes, exactly. Um, I also have done a lot of reading, of course, about, well, what happens for people when they get diagnosed? And I know that it can be, but I know for a lot of people, it's really difficult or confusing or makes them feel bad. And, you know, I was wondering, you said it took you about 10 years before you started taking your diagnosis seriously. What was being diagnosed like for you since it um, happened before this kind of last big rush of the last couple of years? They gave me um, a type of medication that some people use, but it's definitely not the standard. It goes by Wellbutrin. I've explained that as it didn't really help the ADHD, but it did make me feel a little more relaxed about having it. And that was kind of it. But also everyone around me, nobody took it seriously. And I'm like, you know, I'm just a bad person. And maybe I just need to know I'm a bad person in these ways that I'm bad. And just be grateful that these people don't hate me for all the badness that I have. I'll just take this medicine that really doesn't do anything. And uh, yeah, just it's not real. I'll just make a lot of lists, which I do. And that's where all that making of deadlines that aren't real uh, come in and often helpful, sometimes cause immense stress and anxiety. And I preface this by saying I have um, a universal permission slip to say uh, from my husband to say these things. Um, so when he finally hit uh, rock bottom and uh, we got sober 10 or so years ago, And lots of other things uh, in an adjacent way happened in my life that made it quite clear that my goal of being perfect and always being a good girl were not going to succeed. I sort of got re-diagnosed and they had more stuff. Like you did the test where you hit the space bar. If you see the... X come up. Did you hit it twice? Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. And like, I'm like, oh, really? Oh, you have time release? Adderall, so because I sometimes when I, I did briefly take the what I call the straight Adderall, and it kind of felt like it was a super big high and then a lo- drop out. And now they have the type that's time release that I've been on for a long time. Not, I'm not trying to give anybody any medical advice. It's just more that different people do well with different things. And they had made a thing that was a little bit better for me. And, uh, and I just started taking it seriously. And then I started doing things I was interested in that, shockingly, I seemed to do well at rather quickly into trying them. Not perfectly, but just doing things I enjoyed and was interested in as much as I could. And it was really during quarantine, I have these flip chart comedy bits that's kind of like the basis of Lady ADHD. You do this wonderful thing where you basically give the audience, try to give them the uh, feeling of what it is like to live with an ADHD brain by walking them through some of the very deep rabbit holes that you have gone down in your time. Sometimes it would feel like when comedians or bookers, actually I know because some people have come clean to me years later, they would... Ask me, what are you doing this bit? What's this bit? You know, oh, she's got a flip chart. This is going to be a nightmare. As I say in the show, let me tell you how popular it made me to be a newbie, middle-aged, quote-unquote, lady comic showing up to comedy shows with a flip chart. 
right? And the other comics wouldn't talk to me because it seemed like a weird mashup of a 1940s ventriloquist act and a friend of their mom's. It wasn't, it was just didn't seem like this middle-aged lady with the flip chart was going to be someone everyone's going to hang out with. And it was going to be maybe a disaster. But I also knew I was going to need a way to format things, high-tech, portable, right, in order to make sure that people, even at a basement bar open mic, could follow along with what I was saying, even after they had many cocktails. (laughs) Which eventually led me to cutting out pictures and sticking them on flip charts. It was only during quarantine, for whatever reason, why I started thinking about putting together a solo show because someone asked me to, and I didn't just want it to be a bunch of stand-up, that I'm like, look, guys, this is because this is how my brain works, and I'm really frustrated. I get so annoyed. I have to listen to all these dick jokes, and clearly that's how your brain works, and congratulations, but all this stuff is interesting and cool, and it's maybe not for everyone, and that's okay, except it turns out it's for a lot of people, and just let me do my thing, and if it's not funny, believe me, the audience isn't going to laugh, and I realized all these different rabbit holes, uh, and I do have non-flip chart comedy jokes, (laughs) like I have a lot, many, many, I was able to pull lessons I'd learned, and it turned out, I discovered during quarantine that I was really angry, and I had on paper every advantage in in many ways that you could want including to have the the guts the wherewithal whatever to start doing stand-up comedy if I wanted to and I never did because I was so shrunken I was really felt like at so many different points in my life the world around me was trying to shrink me down and tell me not to be proud of some of the things that now I'm pretty proud of and as I put the show together I realized how goddamn angry I was about all that stuff and it shows in the show but I'm not so angry about it anymore not talking to you Daisy yeah well I mean I think the the thing about what you're saying though is like not only is it relatable to me as someone with ADHD I'm sure that there are plenty of you know women who are hearing that and go but that sounds just like my experience of being a woman to a degree which I feel is a huge part of why we don't get diagnosed I've tried to tell people that Really, the show is for anyone who's saw, who's felt like the world around them has tried to put them in a box and tell them what they could or couldn't do and told them that they weren't as good as the spark inside of them felt like they should be because it was being good at something that, for whatever reason, the world around them didn't value. I would just say that it's for anybody who found themselves not fitting in in whatever way the world around them was telling they had to fit in and who have had to struggle with that and maybe, maybe are a little pissed off about it. I want to thank Blair again for coming onto the show. No, thank you so much. And thank you for what you've done in creating Lady ADHD. I think it is very cool to give an audience a little sense of what it is like inside of the ADHD mind. That's our show for this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Daisy Rosario, that's me, is our senior supervising producer. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio here at Slate. We would love to hear from you. Please email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place.
All right. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. So today, Blair and I are going to talk about ADHD and the way that it played out for some people during the pandemic. I got diagnosed during it. I know that some of it was that I finally heard the right descriptions, but I also think a lot of that was because I was just seeing how hard it was for so many of us getting through the day in general, but very specifically what I was being drawn to and what I was running from at the time. And just I couldn't stop playing puzzle games on my phone. I just could not stop. I had been doing stand-up comedy for, what, seven years at that point? So my day job went completely remote and now remains largely remote. I go into an office maybe one or two days a week. I got to work from home. I had more time. And I started doing these flip chart comedy bits. I had a couple of flip chart comedy bits, or I had one that was totally flip chart. The other was I had used a book, but really had been conceived of as a flip chart. But I was like, I can't go showing up to shows with two flip charts. What are people going to, I'm never going to get booked ever in my life. So I made that into a flip chart. I started to do these. I'm like, I guess I'm going to learn video things. I guess I'm going to learn Instagram live. Remember that guys? I guess I'm going to learn all this stuff. I guess I'm going to do the podcast that I had quit doing a while ago. I guess I'm going to, you know, and I started making more of these flip chart things and somebody who was like, why don't you just lean into that? This is years, a year before I did the show about, um, I would say, in the very, very, very beginning of 2021 or very late 2020, I started conceiving of putting this together one person show. And then I, because I was working from home and my flip charts and my comedy, my other stuff was over there in the basement, I had a lot of time to do it. And there weren't a lot of live comedy shows. There were some, but like it was March-ish of last year when it was really became uh, less likely to be huge breaks and shutdowns and that kind of thing. It's only been like 10 months. I had so much time to work on this thing. I put it together. It premiered late June of 2021. I probably didn't really know what the hell I was doing until March. I used to do it in front of a camera and then send it to comedy friends and ask them to edit in a weird way. I mean, I have never had more time to perfect that. I don't know how long it would have got. I would have had to put down that on that show or if someone would have taken a chance on it so quickly. I mean, the producers in Probable Comedy put it on at the Silver Spring Black Black Theater. It was a first show uh, after quarantine or kind of mid-quarantine. And people loved it, probably because they were out of the house for the first damn time in 18 months. So even though it wasn't perfect, because I already had my diagnosis and my prescription and I had my psychiatrist in place who I would have video calls with, and because I had my job that more quickly than a lot of places was able to put us remote, and blah, blah, blah. And because as it turned out, the uh, my day job, the the thing I needed to pay the rent was not something where I had to be everywhere in person, but also wasn't something that was disproportionately hit hard. I didn't have that. I got to tell you, it did pretty good. It was pretty good. It wasn't that. I mean, it was pretty bad. And I missed doing live comedy in front of humans, especially. But it did allow my brain to do all these things it was very interested in. For a while, I was trying to do new flip chart bits every single Friday on Instagram Live. Like, I was doing stuff. 
That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.